Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. Join Tyler and his team as they unlock the secrets to achieving financial independence through wealth building strategies inspired by Robert Kiyosaki and other thought provoking leaders. Learn to build leveraged streams of cash flow that land in your pocket and improve your quality of life. Gain access to cutting-edge ideas that will increase your productivity and streamline your success. Find out how to supercharge your retirement plan so you won't have to retire with a pay cut. You can escape the rat race. Are you ready? It's time to Learn to Earn with Tyler Sheff. Welcome to the Cashflow Guys podcast. It's that time again. This week, I have a guest for you on the show. Nope, it's not anybody that you've probably listened to before on my show. This is their first time here. Now, you guys remember back a while back, we had John Feder on the show, and John is a specialist in single mobile homes, buying mobile homes and then turning around and selling them on terms. Well, now we're going to amp things up quite a bit. We're going to take it to the next level. No, we don't have John Fedro here. Even better from my own market, we've got Kevin Bupp. He's the host of the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is a show that I listen to on a regular basis, guys. And uh, he's also the host of the Real Estate Real Estate Investing for Cashflow Podcast, and he lives right here in my market. Kevin, are you there? Tyler, I'm here. Thanks thanks for inviting me to your show. I'm looking forward to it. I got to ask you, man, you got Grant Cardone on your show a while back. I was listening to that episode. How the heck did you pull that off? That's on my goal <laughs> list for this year. <laughs> I reached out and I, or I, I what did I do? I shot him an email, a couple emails. It took a while. We've got also people that help us book our shows, so right. it's just a little bit of a uh, little bit of persistence, a little bit of uh, annoyance, <laughs> just really ha hammering away at him. We got him on, so I, I he's a unique personality. He's he's hard to keep up with. Oh my god, I was <laughs> mentally exhausted after the end of that interview. I can imagine. I can imagine. I figure worst case scenario, I'll just get in the truck, drive down to Miami. Five hours is worth the investment, and I'll tackle him with a microphone. It'll be good. Yeah, there you go. There <laughs> There you go. <laughs> so you are, you're the multiple, I'm not going to call you a guru because I hate the word. And I heard you say that I think on, on Michael Quarles show is, but you are the expert. You have positioned yourself in the marketplace. You are, in my opinion, the go-to guy for mobile home parks. You know, I think so. Yeah. yeah I, you, you've arrived. Congratulations. You're there. All right. All right. I'm there. I'm there. Good deal. Um, Mobile home parks were kind of a best kept secret, so to speak. And in the last couple of years, it's all I seem to hear about now. It was not too long ago. People used to turn their noses up to them, but now it's gotten wildly popular in the investing space. Can you kind of shed some light on how that happened all of a sudden? Yeah, well, you know, first off, you know, the space really isn't all that old when you compare it to like single family homes and commercial buildings. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of an asset class that isn't really it doesn't it's it's you know, it evolved in like the 30s and 40s as like RV parks here and like vacation spots. And then, you know, like the more permanent type mobile home type communities that we know of, you know, most of those were built in like the 60s, 70s, uh, some in the 80s and some newer than that as well. But 60s, 70s and 80s were majority of them were built. And so it's not that old of an asset class. And I think what really happened is um, those that were in it, um, 
just kind of kept it to themselves is like this really small knit industry. And there's not that many parks in the U.S., Tyler. I mean, there's no one knows the exact number, but the best guess is about 55,000 mobile home parks. And that, that ranges from, you know, anything more than one mobile home. So like right. two, two homes on a parcel of land could be considered a park. And obviously there's some out there that are thousands of spaces in size. And so, but when you compare that to like any other asset class, uh, shopping centers or apartment buildings or self-storage, it's really small. It's a very, very, very small niche. And so I, I think that's why, you know, I, I just think that it was kind of an underground, I don't know going to call it a cult, but I mean, just yeah, <laughs> it was, it was just, an underground investment niche that no one, everyone just kept to themselves. They knew it worked well. Um, and there's really still not that much education out there about it. There's really only one other group of guys out there that are really good at what they do. And they teach about the topic as well. Um, other than myself, there's really not, you can't go on Amazon and buy, like you can't search out like 50 different authors like you can on any other, any other topic. Right. And so it's just, it's just underground little niche that's happening. That's all. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Now, of course, you know, we say that and probably six months from now, there'll be, <laughs> be 15 people doing courses right. and, and whatnot. Well, and I want to talk about your academy here towards the end when we, before mm -hmm. we wrap up. But you talk about risk for a minute. You know, a lot of people that I know have, have taken like John Fedros. We've had John Fedro on the show, as I said there in the brief introduction, as we've had John on the show. And he, he talks about buying the mobiles, the individual mobiles in parks and, and on their own land and then reselling them on terms. But there's always been the stigma of people of being afraid of the mobile home client. In other words, the mobile home buyer or mobile home tenant, somebody that lives in a park. What has been your experience? That doesn't seem to phase you at all. I mean, you just can. I know you owning the park is different, but how is it different as far as getting people to pay on time? Can you shed some yeah. light on that? I mean, it's it just like there's different classes of, let's say you're a single family home guy, you're a multifamily guy, right? There's there's war zone stuff and then there's a class and there's everything in between. Right. And the same applies to whatever you're investing in, mobile home parks being the same. And so, you know, there's mobile home parks that I wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. Like even if someone gave them to me, I wouldn't take them for free because they're just in bad areas, really rough areas. And you're never, ever going to be able to attract the quality clientele. And so we would typically look for parks that are that, you know, they might have some kind of distress in them, meaning like the tenant base might be distressed or just the park itself has a lot of deferred maintenance, but it's in a good area, meaning that if we can clean out the riffraff, we can attract good quality people that are looking for a clean, safe and affordable place to live. Right. And so really it comes down to the quality of the landlord, the quality of your tenant comes down to the quality of the landlord and their screening processes. And so as long as you buy the right park in the right market, right? And because here's what I mean by that. If you bought a really rough park in a rough part of town being like surrounding that park is like drug sex and rock and roll for like a mile radius. <laughs> I don't care what you do to that park. I don't care how nice you make it. I don't care if you bring brand new homes in and you, you know, pave the roads in gold. It doesn't matter. You're still going to attract that same clientele right. because that's what that market is. And so, um, you know, I, my, my experience with it has been, uh, you know, uh, my background is, is single family homes. I've owned hundreds of them, owned hundreds of apartment doors. And I've always been in like the lower realm of things. And so um, always affordable housing, never like war zone stuff, but just aff affordable, good quality blue collar housing. Like that's kind of what my niche has always been. And so I know how to deal with that clientele base. And um, and there's really no difference different in the mobile home park space. I mean, we literally deal. I deal with the same clientele that I dealt with when I owned single family homes and apartment buildings. Hmm. And so, I, but I think a lot of it, again comes down to the screening process that the the owner or the landlord puts in place. A lot of the parks we buy that are in good areas but have a bad clientele base currently, it's because the owners literally, if if you've got money, they let you live there. Right. And and so you know that's when all the bad stuff starts coming in, and we can easily get rid of it and um, and turn the places around. So. So, you know, it's 
it's been difficult and, and I'm both as for me as an investor and as a commercial agent, somebody that, that buy that helps other people buy and sell these things is, is, you know, the, the tenant base when you're buying, are you taking steps to qualify the tenant base as you're buying a new asset or is this just for when people move, move their, yeah, their absolutely. Or? Absolutely. I mean, we do our best that we can to, to qualify the current tenant base because we want to know like how reliable that income is going to be. Cause we're, we're buying the park based on the income. And so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into profit and loss statements and, you know, bank deposit statements, assuming that they actually deposit money in the bank. Some of these mom and pop park owners are like, they treat them like ATM machines and they only accept cash and they put it in their pocket instead of depositing into the bank. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, we do our best to qualify, you know, the income stream and the quality of the resident, meaning like when we take over and we enforce rules, meaning like we have a, a very strict no pay, no stay policy. It's black and white. We don't have the luxury of giving people exceptions here and there because we own lots of property and we run like a business. And, right. you know, typically the reason why these things are struggling is because they're not being run like a business. And so we try to identify a loss rate that will incur based on the quality of the current tenant base, meaning like when we buy it and we implement our policies, how many people are not going to be able to get with the show right. and, and pay on time and make up their, you know, past due balances that they have. And, um, you know, th typically we lose some, uh, sometimes more than others, but, you know, we kind of try to factor that in and we've done pretty good. We, we kind of hedge our risk by just estimating normally pretty high. And a lot of times it never really ends up being that bad when we take over. So I get yeah, the, yeah, we do our best. We do our best. You know, I get the being an apartment guy. I get the no pay, no stay. My my policy has a couple swear words in it, but it's, it's more like it starts with an F and, and continues from there. But <laughs> I can get someone to move out with a moving truck, but I don't think you have that same luxury, do you? I mean, how do you evict somebody when their home is on your pad? How's that? Work? Yeah, I've, every state's different, but the states that we own in, we're currently in seven states now. And uh, very similar to a normal eviction, but, you know, every, every county, you got to kind of look at how they view mobile home evictions. But, I mean, the tenant themselves, it's just like an apartment eviction. I mean, you evict that person out of the park and out of their home. Now, what that judge or that, that county or that municipality requires that you do with their home after you evict the person is a different story. Um, a lot of times, you know, uh, the judge will either give the tenant, you know, 30 or 60 days to move it. After that, it, it becomes considered an abandoned piece of property. And then the owner of the park, meaning us would have to go through like an abandoned title process. Like you would, like if someone left a car on your grass for okay. three months, right. you know, kind of the same process. Um, other, other States, no, nothing that we own uh, in right now, but I know I've heard of other States where the judge will literally make the park owner pay to move the trailer to like a, a storage lot or a holding lot, which is very expensive. You know, Ouch. you're just talking to probably about 1500 bucks to move a trailer and, and go store it somewhere. And they, you have to give the tenant a certain amount of time to reclaim their property. Um, you know, but a lot of times I could tell you here, here's what happens normally. Number one, if they own their own home, very few people walk away. That literally is by far most, most of the time, the most valuable thing that they own in their possession. And so when you're talking about like our average park that we have, our average lot rent, if we looked at all the parks we own, our average lot rent is probably about $300 a month. Right. And if they own their own home, I don't care what market it's in. There is nowhere you can live. And our parks are nice. They're, they're quiet. They're safe. There's nowhere else you can live for that $300 a month. I don't care if you even want to live in the, the scummiest apartment building. You can't find one within $300 a month. And so most of the time, people figure out a way to make it up. I mean, if they're going to literally lose that home, they figure out a way to either make it up, make up that back payment, or – well, from like a cash cash for keys type situation where we'll say, hey, you got to tell your trailer, 
you know, we'll give you X amount of dollars for it. Just right. move on. We'll wipe your balance clean, you know, transfer the title to us, you know, you take this money, move on your way. So it very rarely ever gets to a situation. We've got one right now, and this is the first one that we've had in a year and a half right. where we literally evicted the tenant and they just, we tried to actually offer them cash or keys. They weren't smart enough to take it. You know, this, they kind of just ignored us for many months. Right. And now we're like, I think we're about four months into the abandoned title process. It's in Virginia. And we're about a month away from getting the title issued to us. We had to pay, um, I think about total, like all fees included, probably about $800. The trailer's probably worth about four grand. And so, you know, we've had that lost revenue, the lot rent because no one's paying, no one's living there. But sure. what we'll, what we'll do is we'll take the, we'll take that thing over and we'll do some renovations to it and turn around and sell it off and get someone in there. that's going to pay rent. So it's not that bad. It's not, really not that bad of a thing. And that, that's the beautiful thing about the park business is you don't have that happen that often. I mean, if they own their own home, the turn is not the same as what you'd experience in like owning a a multifamily. I mean, your apartment buildings, if they want to leave, they pack up their backpack and put their mattress on the roof and they go, you know, (laughs) it doesn't work that way here. (laughs) Yeah. It's something honestly that I've been considering for quite a while. I've got a lot of investors because you may know that I do a lot of, I I raise a lot of capital for the apartment buildings and inventory is tight right now. Cap rates are at an all time low and we're kind of thinking, well, maybe we need to start changing strategies a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Looking at, parks as an option and, and I see different sizes of parks. I know you play in a lot of the bigger spaces like being here in, in the central and the west coast of Florida, as you well know, we got Pasco County just to the north of us. There's a trailer park mm-hmm. every 15 feet, but yeah, it, they seem very small and very, I don't know, meth lab-ish. <laughs> and <laughs> does that fall in line with what you're saying about, you know, just don't, ignore them all together? There's nothing around them to really there's no jobs like in Pasco County. There's no real employer there. Everybody has to commute to Tampa to, to work. Yeah, but it's it's close enough though. You know, you always have to look at the patterns of the local area. Like right. we'll we'll buy in secondary and tertiary markets, and we just we try to figure out what the what the local market patterns are. And I'll give you the example of that. Like here in Florida, you know, we're pretty much used to driving half an hour wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever errand we run. Like there's enough traffic in anywhere in Tampa Bay that you just pretty much a lot thirty minutes to do whatever the heck you want to do. Right? right I mean, right. Can, can you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Okay, and that, and that could just mean four or five miles, right? Driving four or five miles, it takes you that long depending on the time of day. Well, let me give you an example of what I mean by that. In Iowa, we almost bought a park two years ago in Iowa. We didn't, but it was in a small town, smaller than what we would normally like. And it, it was more like a tertiary town to a not-so-large metro that was about – I think it was about 26 miles away, the, the next metro. But in Iowa, it's literally – it's small towns and cornfields. Like right. there's, there's no traffic these sec- these these roads that you're on these state roads that you're on you go 70 miles an hour 80 miles an hour so 26 miles for them which for us that's like driving from from you know where I live up in Clearwater down to I don't know down to downtown you know downtown St. Pete I mean you're talking a 45 minute drive but for them it's nothing cuz they're going 80 miles an hour right. and like that's just that's just the norm for them and so we always try to figure out what the local patterns are. So getting back to your point of like Pasco County um we know that everyone up there um probably if they have any type of Substantial job. They probably work in Tampa or they, they commute down here to Pinellas County. But um, I consider like Pasco County a blue collar retirees haven. And, you know, it's yes. affordable living for retirees that want to be near the ocean, near the Gulf of Mexico. And so, you know, a lot of people that live in mobile home parks, you're talking in, in Pasco County, the average lot rents probably about 300 or 350 a month. Right. And so you don't necessarily need to commute to Tampa. You know, someone like a working couple that works at Walmart, you know, as greeters making eight or nine bucks an hour can easily afford to live in a mobile home park. And we know that there's plenty of service jobs in Pasco County. Oh, and absolutely. so 
I, I would not shy away from buying anything in Pasco County because I think that those that want higher paying jobs have the opportunity to go to Tampa, which people are used to. Pasco to Tampa is not a abnormally long drive for people that do it. You know, like to them, it's just the norm. And then, you know, there's plenty of other jobs up there. I mean, there's not a lot going on in Pasco County, but there's enough. There's enough to support a resident that would want to live, you know, in an affordable space, you know, near the ocean, near the beach. Right. Um, so, no, not at all. I would not shy away from Pasco County. Does it? Is there a, I know you only, you, you tend to stick to the larger assets, not the, the 8, 10, 20 pad type place. Is there, is there a huge downside for that? Or is it just kind of an economies of scale thing for um, you? Or what, what's your yeah, thought it, on that? It, yeah, it's economies of scale. And, you know, every park we own, we have on-site managers that live full time. And so there's a certain component of like, you got to be able to factor in that, you know, be able right. to afford to actually, we get free housing and we pay them like a small monthly salary and, you know, some bonuses for leasing and selling or, you know, whatever is going on in that park, you know, your collections bonuses. And, um, so you gotta be able to afford to have a manager. You get what you pay for, you know, if you're only going to try to pay someone hundred bucks a month and you want them to collect your rents on time and go be aggressive <laughs> and pound on doors, yeah. forget about it. It's not going right. to happen, but more so than anything else, you know, the whole um, the whole scales of economy that you really notice is with we have any kind of like infrastructure repairs. And so typically in a mobile home park, you own the infrastructure, uh, depending on what it is. Uh, the preference would be like city utilities, meaning like the water and the sewers provided by the city or the town. But quite commonly, even up in Pasco, um, a lot of that area up there is on you know, or was back when these parks were built back in the, the 50s and 60s. It was on septic. private, you know, meaning like well and yeah. uh, well and septic. Yeah. And so. The challenge with small parks is um, a couple of different challenges, but, you know, if you have any kind of major infrastructure repairs, and, and so we're talking like, we're talking really dated infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Most mobile home parks are older. They have dated infrastructure and um, you have a septic tank go out. This is assuming you could even, you know, up, you know, code today would allow you to even replace it. But assuming that you could get a septic go out and you had to put a new tank and a new leach field and you're talking you know, probably four grand, or $5,000. Yeah. 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 Or, or best case scenario, probably about five grand. And right. so, that's a big hit. If you only have a 15 space park, that is a massive chunk <laughs> sure of is. your of your revenue for the year. But if it's a 50 space park, not really. It's just a little blip on the map. You've kind of already planned for it. If you're putting your reserves aside, it's really hard to put enough reserves aside in a 15 space park to, you know, to be able to to manage those types of infrastructure challenges, which you're going to face. Like it's inevitable. Oh yeah. Um, it's just it's going to happen. And so. But so between like, you know, being able to set aside necessary reserves and and, uh, and also hire proper management, that's really why we kind of look at larger parks. But then there's other other reasons as well. You know, like with a smaller park, we always think about our exit. Like what's our exit strategy? We always want to know what my exit might be when I'm getting into something. And I'm right. a long-term guy, but I always want to know if I, how do I get out of it? Like sure. who's going to be my end buyer? With a small park, typically your end buyer is going to be a very small-time investor, someone that probably – doesn't have a ton of money, someone that probably is going to expect you to carry financing. You know, um, a lot of banks don't like the smaller deals. Any, any, any bank, you know, if they do commercial loans, like anything under 500 grand in terms of like a loan amount, like on a commercial side, right. isn't all that attractive to them. And so they're harder to get financed. Um, the exit out of them is harder for the owner. And so there's just a lot of underlying negative factors that are associated with small parks. Not that you can't make money with them. It's just that if you're going to spend your time and energy it's literally the same amount of time and energy buying a 50 space versus a 20 space park. Right. It really is. Right. And, yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it just makes more sense to go with the, uh, but I guess to some degree, somebody has got to buy the smaller ones. And I, I was wondering if that sure. was a, made sense is a, you know, I'm going to buy my first mobile home park type place. Does it make any sense to do it, a, it can. Yeah. A it, it's, I mean, obviously there's, there's people out there that make money with them and, um, 
I could tell you that my experience, uh, you know, when we first got into this, we were looking at smaller parks and, um, I found maybe it's just me, but I found to, to me, there was a pattern of the smaller park owners were the less sophisticated owners typically. And they for almost always felt like their property was worth much more than what it really was. Like their oh, expectations yeah. were drastically out of line. Then when we're talking to an owner that has an 80 space park, a little bit more sophisticated, kind of understands the income evaluation approach. Whereas these smaller park owners literally just back when they built this park or bought it 30 or 40 years ago, like it was literally like, it wasn't an expensive investment, you know, it was kind of, right. they, they were buying like a really, really low investment. And they're just kind of like, you know, uh, I guess, uh, hack, hack investors and, um, they're not a lot sophisticated. And so there's, that's been in my experience as any of these smaller, a lot of the smaller parks, like they're just, their valuations are way out of line of what is reality and what you could, you should be, you should be buying them for, you know? So, but not saying you can't buy them and, um, the good thing is, is that, as I mentioned, the financing is very challenging. And so that actually lends benefit to you being a buyer because that seller, if he's a seller of a small park, there's not a lot of options for him or, or the buyers coming in to go get bank financing. And, and if he's asking 400 grand or something like that, four or 500 grand, not many people have that much money laying around just to go buy all cash, you know, right, like right. you got to put some leverage in place. So there's benefits both ways, but you know, for us, it's a business. And so we do invest, we bring investors in just like you do that scales of a kind that we gain by buying larger parks. They're more efficient to manage. We can afford to pay a better manager. Like the manager on site is everything. I can imagine. You know, being a land, being a landlord of your own properties. I mean, it's one thing to be an investor, but being uh, a landlord, you get burned out pretty quick. It's not a fun business. If you're the guy knocking on doors and collecting rent checks, it's just not. And so the quality of your on site manager really, determines the quality and the profitability of your entire park. And so you get what you pay for, but the bigger park, we can afford better quality. And, and we even run into that same issue with, you know, like a lot of our, I think about the average size of our parks nowadays that we're buying are about 60 to 80 spaces. But, um, you know, the difference of like a 16, 80 space park to like 150 space park, the quality that we can afford to manage it's like night and day. Like we're, we're just kind of just, we get really lucky here and there with us, with those 60 and 80 space parks, uh, getting a quality person in place. But with a 150 space park, we can literally pay someone that probably has apartment management experience. So we can pay someone that's actually got some, they've worked in apartments, they've done leasing, they understand fair housing, like we can pay them 30 grand a year, which is, you know, kind of entry level property management. So we right. can get a much higher caliber person in a bigger park. You can get quasi pro based on a larger park more than instead Absolutely. of the, the guy with the coveralls and the, and the, the straw Absolutely. thing of wheat sticking <laughs> out of his mouth, you know. <laughs> we, we just hired a new manager in one of our parks actually over the weekend we made the transition. It's a park we have in Alabama and uh, I think we got really lucky with this one. I'll let you know in about a month um, but I'm pretty, pretty happy. It's actually a retired cop, him and his wife. Um, he was a, a canine police officer and uh, very structured, give them free housing. We pay them a monthly fee, but we've got a lot of homes in that park that we own that we're, you know, we've got a sales program in place. So he can actually make some really good money selling homes. And right. um, I think it's going to be a good fit, but that park is about the, it's like, it's like a threshold of size where we can't afford like someone really that's got a lot of experience, but I think we kind of got lucky finding him because he does have a little bit of experience, but that wasn't the norm of the resumes that were coming in for that job. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. That's for sure. I, uh, you know, in the underwriting process, I know you probably do some sort of preliminary underwriting, for example, and I'm a big believer in, and I tell the people on the, on the show here and, and the, my students, I tell them, you know, you, you buy a property based on what it does do, not on what it, what, what it will do. In other Correct. words, you know, this thing's going to perform 20% cash on cash return. And, and right now it's at a 4% cash on cash return. Don't pay for the, the, the price based on it being a 20% cash on cash. 
and I know that, you know, I don't know, I'm sure you run into this in the market. I know you, you spend a lot of time on off-market properties. I know you've got a pretty substantial marketing program together, as I do for apartment buildings. Are you, when you're finding difficulty with these, like you said, these park owners that just feel their place is minted in gold, do you deviate from that process at all if you're able to, to force the appreciation? Like, say, if, you, if, you, if you're in a park and let's say it, it's priced okay, but it's not necessarily a home run, are you willing to pay a little more just to get the, get the deal done to have the chance to force the appreciation? Or do you just Absolutely. negotiate harder? Okay. All right, good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I give it, that, that's actually a really good question. Uh, that, and that's why I tell people that whether you're buying mobile home parks or apartments, I mean, if you're going to be in the value add gaming, like you're buying something that isn't being perfectly run efficiently today and it's not fully maximized in its value, um, that there's there's some kind of value add component there, then you shouldn't be a cap rate shopper. Like forget cap rate, throw it out the window. It's irrelevant um, because how the, how the, how the current <laughs> person's running it or the current operator is running, it, it's not how you're going to run it. And so you really need to, you need to know the business that you're in, whether it's mobile home parks or apartment buildings or anything else. Like you need to understand what it's going to cost you to run it and how, how to underwrite it. Don't use their numbers. You, know, you can use them to a certain extent, but you need to understand what it's going to cost you to run it. So I'll give you an example. We bought a park in Virginia, probably one of the best deals we've done. It's one of the smallest parks we own. Um, Bottle Park in Virginia, up in the Richmond area, is a 52-space park, and the owner had owned it for like 32 years. Really sharp guy. It's crazy. He owned a huge litigation practice. He's a D.C. attorney. Right. Really, really smart guy, but a terrible mobile home park operator. Um, beautiful park, well-maintained, had older homes in it, but very well-maintained. Definitely did not defer maintenance. In fact, almost to his detriment, he you know he fixed things. I mean, to where like this thing just never made money. You know, it would gross 250000 a year, and his NOI the year that we bought it, or the previous year to us buying it was like $20,000. I mean, wow. his, his expenses were just through the roof. And based on what he thought it was worth or what he wanted to sell it for, it, it effectively was like a four cap that we were buying at or like a four and a half cap. But I knew based on digging into it and I knew, I knew the market, I knew his management style, I knew what was happening there. I saw where all of his, his expenses were going to. I knew that we could easily fix that problem very, very quickly. I mean, within a matter – in our mind, it was going to take us like 90 days, and we did it in like 45. Within like 60 days, we were taking distributions, and it's been probably the best operating park that we own to date. And um, he, his NOI was 28000 the, the year before we bought it. Our first, very first calendar year, actually, which was 2016, that was like the first full calendar year. The park did like $76,000 in NOI. Wow. <laughs> so, and after our debt service, I mean, I think we walked away you know, 120 some odd thousand dollars after debt service, you know, cash flow after debt service. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. And, and so, but I, we knew we could fix it. And so we overpaid for it drastically on the front end, but knew we could fix it very quickly. And he actually, he financed it. And so we used that against him because we said, look, we'll pay your price, which is way overpaying. But you got to finance it because if the bank looks at looks at your books right now, he had really well kept books. He had a CPA that kept his uh, um, all his financials for him, and so like they were in order, but they just, they look terrible. This park made no money, and so I said, "There's no way in the bank's right mind would they ever finance this." And <laughs> right. so, if you want us to buy and overpay for it, because basically we're paying double than what we should. Um, I didn't tell him we were going to fix it right away, you know, but uh, I think he thought he was getting one over on us, but he financed it. We've got good financing in place. He held financing back. I think we put down about 25% and, um, paid six fifty for it. And today, um, uh, the park, the park recently appraised for like $1.6 million. So we added a million dollars in value without doing much. Nice. <laughs> nice. He's changing some basic systems and processes. That's all. Do you use a hurdle rate or any sort of quick test method when you're, you know, when you're just, when someone's telling you, Hey, I have a park or they call you on the phone. Is there any sort of 
quick math that you use to, to either I'm going to pay attention for five more minutes or you're going to move on to the next deal? Or how do you do that quickly? Yeah. Yeah, the first thing is the market, honestly. Like, I care about the market way more than I care about the park. And so right. I want to know, like, what market it's in first. And there's a website we go to very quickly. Just to, if I don't know the market already, I use a, a free website called bestplaces.net. Hey, and it's just, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Did we use just uh, real quick um, uh, statistics on the area, the market, the metro that's in, the population, the job growth, unemployment rate, median house price, median rents. You know, we look at all those things to find out, okay, it's like, is this a depressed area in the middle of like a cornfield or is right. it, is it in the growth pattern? Like, is it in the growth area with jobs coming in, unemployment rates low, median house prices are high because our goal is to find affordable housing, right? And we want to find affordable housing in a place where it's not affordable to live. Because that's where the demand is. And so that's the first thing we look at. But then after that, if it's in an area that we might know um, or that we know is, is half decent, then just real quick rule of thumbs is there's all these different s setups with mobile home parks, meaning like, you know, who owns the homes? Sometimes there's parks that they own none of the homes and it's just lot renters, meaning the tenants own the homes. And they pay lot rent. And then there's other parks that are kind of a hybrid of the two. Some are lot renters. Some of the homes are owned by the park and they have them as rentals. And then there's other parks that are a complete other end of the spectrum, which are all rentals. Like literally it's a 100% rental park. It's like a, an apartment building. And so on the low end of the spectrum, um, the, the, the lowest expense scenario would be when the tenants own all their own homes right. and the water is supplied by the city, you know, the sewer supplied by the city is built direct. You probably could just use a rough rule of thumb um, about about 30 to 35% expense ratio okay. of gross income. And on the other end of the spectrum, if it's all rental homes um, and that's how it's been run for a while, then you could just treat it like a really low end apartment building, like a C minus or a D grade. And you're probably going to be looking at about 60% expense ratio. Okay. And then, you know, the hybrid of the two kind of falls in the middle. So when we're looking at most of the deals we look at have a component of park owned homes or like rental homes in them. Not a lot, but they have a component of that. And so we normally feel pretty safe, you know, kind of going at like a 40 or 45% expense ratio, like just literally really quick math. And um, that should at least get you close enough to determine like where you want to be. He wants 2 million. I think it's worth a million. Wow. We're a million dollars apart. There's no way we're ever <laughs> going to come close, but okay. He wants 1.5. My evaluation shows a 1.3. Oh, well, I need to dig a little deeper. Sure. I need to like really find out where these expenses are coming from. How many, you know, what is ec economic occupancy really is? Um, you know, are there any other variables in there that I don't know about, uh, you know, so uh, dig a little deeper if it's close, if it's really far apart, like millions of dollars apart, then you just kind of move on. That's cool. To the next one. You mentioned economic occupancy. Can you kind of help the, the listeners understand what that means? Let's say let's say you have a hundred space park, and let's say that there's a hundred trailers inside that park, and so that that would be a hundred percent physical occupancy, meaning that there's a trailer on one hundred trailers on one hundred pads. So physical occupancy is hundred percent. But let's say that only ninety of those trailers have people living in them that are actually paying. Right. Uh, you know, the other, the other 10 could, maybe there's people living there, but they're not paying. Right. And so, or they're just empty either way, but only 90 people are actually paying. And so that would be a 90% economic occupancy, meaning like that's real money, real revenue coming in at okay. that point in time. The other 10, you can't really consider that to be occupancy because there's no revenue coming in from those, those pads. Although there's a trailer there, there might be even bodies in there, but they're not paying rent. <laughs> yeah. Live bodies. I'm sure you were referring to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Live bodies. Live I was bodies. thinking the yeah, other right. way. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of old people in Florida and sometimes, you know, <laughs> bad things. But happen. Uh, most of the time in the park business, you know, when someone says like physical occupancy versus economic, normally they're just, they're really saying like there's probably some empty homes that are owned by the park, like rental units that are just empty, vacant units at this point in time. So although the park's 100 spaces um, and 100, there's 100 trailers in there, 
there's 10 trailers that are vacant right now. They're in different states of repair and, you know, they can be renovated and brought back online. But as of now, there's only 90 actual people in this park paying right now at this moment in time. So it's a 90% economic occupancy. Okay. That makes sense. So basically it's the opposite of uh, vacancy rate essentially is you take your vacancy. Yeah. I guess you can that. That way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, so if I want to get started or one of my listeners wants to get started with mobile home parks, I know you have an academy and you've got mm-hmm. some opportunities where people can either invest with you if they want to be more passive, but if they want to be active, you have uh, solutions for both. Can we just talk about that before we have to wrap up? And we're just rolling out the Academy, depending on when this, the show goes live, uh, Tyler, we're just rolling it out uh, this week. So it's, right. it's a new thing. Now we've been obviously, we've been training for a long time. Now we do a weekly podcast. I definitely, uh, I, I, I take free phone calls during the week, uh, specifically the mobile home park investing. So we help a lot of people in this business. We try to get back, we try to add value and help others that have an interest, you know, kind of get involved and learn the business. But what we found is that with the academy, we, we had a lot of people. There's only one other group out there that trains on this topic. Literally, there's one other company out there that trains on this topic. And I went through the training many years ago. And uh, what we found is that those that go through it, there's a very small percentage that ever do anything. And I think the only reason why is that it's a three-day boot camp. And this is a such a unique niche that you're getting fed with a fire hose for three days. And it's really hard to go to a three-day event oh, yeah. and walk away and say, I'm going to go buy a $2 million mobile home park. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> – the average person doesn't fly. Like for me, I had a lot of background in real estate. And for me, it was just kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to adapt to a new asset class. I'm right. going to switch from apartments. I'm, so it's a little bit, but it was still challenging. Honestly, it was still challenging because there's so many unique nuances with mobile home parks that don't exist with other types. So we built the academy as a, as a really long term, it's a three month program. So 90 day intensive program um, that basically, we took our business from beginning from from the from the market analysis side through acquisitions all the way to negotiations to raising private capital to the operational side to even exiting out of that asset. So from A to Z, we basically took our business and all the systems and processes and we turned it into an easy to follow system that is it's very much of a hand holding process. Like our whole goal is to help people actually find deals. Like 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 help them through the entire process from beginning to end so that by the end of the ninety days they truly have enough information to go buy their first park. Not three days, but 90 days, right, you know? Right. And uh, so that's what the Academy is all about. It's just, it's a very intensive program and um, we're, we're super excited about it. Had a ton of interest since we've been talking about it. We've been working on it for a year and a half. It's been a long time coming. It's, it's a very, very in-depth program. In fact, we tried to like scale it back from 90 days to like 60 and realize that there's just too much information. There's yeah, no way that the I, average person can get through it in 60 days. So <laughs> I can imagine I'm uh, going through a little bit of that myself. I come out with the investor's toolkit. It's all the stuff that the gurus don't teach you, the stuff you really need to know. And initially I'm like, well, I should be able to get this put together in 30 days. And, and I'm, I'm eight months in. I'm like, oh, yeah, God, yeah, it's wow. a long process. And this stuff's so then week, so. And then on top of the academy, we have, I mean, we do our own deals, obviously. And right. uh, we, we just ro- actually recently rolled out a new investment fund. And so we we buy deals and we bring those that have an interest in being passive and getting involved in this asset class. Uh, we, we bring them into our deals and they we basically split equity with them and give them, pay them a preferred return as well. And so it's a way for those that like, you know, maybe they're professional, maybe they own another business, maybe they're in a different asset type and they just don't have the time to go out and learn a new business or to even think about diversifying. And so they want to diversify, they want to get into another asset class that produces high yields. And so it's a way for them to get actively involved and actually have a a piece or a stake in some of the lucrative deals we do without actually having the day-to-day operation side of things. So um, we do both. And, um, you know, our uh, we're all about giving back. And um, the Academy is kind of our ability. And it's like our portal to, to allow 
ourselves to train others and help others get into this business. Like I'm passionate about this business, which is kind of funny. It makes people giggle sometimes. When they hear me say like, you're passionate about mobile home parks. Yeah, It's really cool because I really think we're giving something that our society is. We're giving back to society in a great way because yeah. affordable housing is, is an all-time high shortage right now. We're not building enough of it to keep up with the demand. And mobile home parks really fill a unique void. And I'm not talking about the low-end slum drug-ridden parks. I'm talking about parks that are in good markets with good school districts that provide affordable housing in a market that's not affordable. Exactly. You know, like where we live, Tyler, right now, I mean, Pinellas County, I don't know what the median house price is, but it's probably 170, 180,000. You know, apartment, apartment rents are ridiculous. I mean, to go rent a two-bedroom apartment in a B-class, you're definitely paying a thousand bucks a month. Easily. And so, but you can still live in a mobile home that's a 3-2 you got your own parking pad. You put Christmas lights up outside. You can have a little yard for your kids to play in. You can live in that all day long for 500 bucks in, in where we live. So basically for half the price of an apartment, you get your own place. Well, frankly, right? you get so, more value to some degree, especially if you're doing a good job of operating the park. Absolutely. Like. If it, absolutely. somebody wants to join your academy, or, or what, what's the best way to do that? Is there just a flat fee yeah. or is it something they apply for? And There's a process to interview and you talk about the fee? Or, yeah, there's a little bit of an interview process that they have to go through. So, But they can go to mobilehomeparkacademy.com. They can learn more about it. In fact, what we've done is we actually created like a two-hour um, free training um, on, on three topics that are very relevant about to getting into this business and being successful. And they can find out on the website. And so after they go through that training, at that point in time, they'll learn more about the academy. But it's kind of a it's somewhat of a, a little bit of a tasting or an, or an appetizer more so to show you like the quality of the content that you're going to get and kind of the angle or the approach that we take on teaching this niche. Cool. And so in that free two, it's a two hour training. It's really long. There's no fluff in it. I mean, it literally is all trained. We teach, teach about how we, uh, how we evaluate markets and so how we how we choose um, profitable markets to invest in for mobile home parks. We talk about building a very strategic mobile home park database. Like you can't just go buy a list of every mobile home park in the United States like you can for apartment buildings or single family homes. Like it's not that easy. And so it takes a lot of time and energy to actually research markets and build a uh, very specific database of mobile home parks with you know park owner information like their home mailing address, their their cell phone numbers and such. So we teach you how to do that. And after that, we teach you how we actually get in contact with these people, which is direct mail or in cold calling. That's like our, literally, th those are two ways that we get in contact with every single park owner that we have. Every park that we have in contract now and every park we bought has either been a direct mail or a cold call. And so in that free training, we go through all three of those, kind of show you how to put it all together. And after that, either you have enough to go do something on your own, or if you really want more handholding and you want to learn everything from A to Z, then you can learn a little bit more about the academy. So it's kind That's of... Um, yeah, pre-qualification process, go through that training. Well, you can rest assured I have already put my reservation in because I want to learn more. You know, <laughs> Good I, like you, I'm an apartment I guy. I want you to learn more. <laughs> yeah, I, you're, you're an apartment guy. You've made the transition. I'm at that point now where it's like I have nothing wrong with apartments, but inventory is getting skinny, and I want to learn, and I want to take my business to the next level. I don't. The fact that I've been doing real estate for as long as I have does not mean that I'm not willing and ready to learn and, more importantly, realize that I have a lot more to learn about this this stuff. So I'm excited. Absolutely. Yeah. You gotta be, you gotta be, I mean, when you're a real estate investor in general, you gotta be willing to adapt, right? Yes, it changes. Yes. And so, you know, I, I, um, you know, the funny thing is I could tell you that one of the, one of the mistakes I've made in my real estate career, Tyler, is that I didn't change fast enough. So I, I was buying a lot of single family homes and I was buying apartments simultaneously, but I didn't put enough focus in the apartments. I, I did acquire a pretty large amount of them. I was a partner and I wasn't 100% owner of those, but 
I had such a big system in buying single family homes and I knew that that model just didn't work as well as owning these multifamily properties. It took as much work, if not more work to buy them and to manage them was just a nightmare, but I was just comfortable. I didn't adapt fast enough. And if I would have actually put all my eggs into multifamily and, and exited out of those single families before 2008 happened, then I, I probably would have retained a lot of the wealth that I had built. Whereas most of my single family homes just didn't make it through the crash, through the downturn. And um, they, they brought the rest of the castle come crumbling down with it. So yeah, I didn't adapt fast enough. And and I saw the, the writing was on the wall and I should have been changing, uh, changing my strategy, but I didn't. So I think that's that's really important for people to understand. And it doesn't mean you have to switch from apartments to mobile home parks, but you know, you really always need to be like one step ahead of what the market's doing. Try to, no one's a fortune teller, no one's got a crystal ball, but do your best at at having your own crystal ball and just paying attention to what's going on around you. You know, it's, it's funny we're at this point now where I can, I don't know if you were investing Tyler back in 2008, but I was. I remember how many like teachers and coaches and mentors, this, that, and the other were getting into, and how many like, you know, programs were on TV and how many flyers I'd get in the mail saying about like, you know, so-and-so's coming to Tampa Bay to teach, you know, how to flip houses or how to get rich in real estate, you know, towards like the crash leading up to the crash, that stuff happened more and more, meaning like I saw more and more coaches, more and more training programs, more and more guru programs out there. And then it just went away. 2008, when the market crashed, like you didn't, you didn't hear anyone teaching about it anymore. Now, I literally get at least at least two letters a week to my house about some kind of expert traveling the country teaching you know, this, this unique strategy they have to make millions in the Tampa Bay market or whatever, whatever it is, you know, <laughs> and, um, too. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like everyone wants to start training coaching. I'm not saying Tyler or I, because I think what we have is very unique and uh, very, very much uh, a value, but, um, it's just pay attention to what's going on around you, That's you know, just sure. don't just listen to what the person next to you is saying, like, you know, just expand out, step out of your bubble for a second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look at that guy's schedule of real estate owned and see if he, <laughs> See if he's exactly really, if he's really yep. able to speak on the topic or not. <laughs> yep, for yep, sure, exactly. Kevin, so. I appreciate it. that was outstanding. I would love to have you back on the show again in the future because I know there's just, we're just scratching the surface. And ladies and gentlemen, there you have it in the show notes. I'm going to put his contact information out to his website and uh, his podcast as well. He's got two podcasts, both great content. I've been listening to uh, the Cash Flow one for couple years now you started that one back in i believe 2014 wasn't it mm -hmm. yeah, yeah three over three years now yeah. yeah 2014 i remember that listen to that one that's a great show and uh, i remember the grant cardone episode so absolutely <laughs> kevin thank you so much and uh, I, I look forward to talking to you again in the future and ladies and gentlemen if you want to take your real estate investing to the next level to a different direction you're looking to make some changes or simply just find out more about the information head on over to kevin's website drop your name in there find out more about it Take some steps, step outside of your comfort zone. For those of you that have not joined our Facebook group, shame on you. You just missed some great content. We were streaming live from Larry Harbolt's Never Step Into a Bank uh, boot camp last weekend. We were, did a live stream for Larry there, and that was available to people that were in the Cashflow Guys community on Facebook. So if you want to take advantage of opportunities when they come up in the future, head on over to cashflowguys.com forward slash group cashflowguys.com forward slash group that is absolutely free of charge gives you the opportunity to interact with both myself and our guests on the show we'll go ahead and uh, see if we, kevin would be so kind to join us over there at some point and uh you got larry harbolt you got lots of other guests out there john federal all them so uh, we look forward to seeing you over there in the group and we will catch you next week have a great week and be out there learning to earn this concludes today's episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn. 
Head over to CashflowGuys.com and contact Tyler and his team for more powerful tips and ideas so you can start generating multiple streams of income and escape the rat race.